Okay. Hello, everybody. Uh, thanks for, you know, tuning back in to join uh, me and my co-hosts, Corey and Troy. Today, we're going to be building on episode two, where Corey expounded some of her experiences as a military contractor. The goal of this episode is just to have a, a kind of plain language discussion and to leave the viewer or listener with a better understanding of how the Pentagon creates and oversees contracts and contractors, where the money goes, and to kind of provide listeners with an ability to distinguish or create a better understanding of the distinction between a contractor and military service member's experience with war. With that, I'll let my co-hosts introduce themselves or reintroduce themselves or say hello, and then we'll dive in. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning back into Breaking Left. This is Corey. This is Troy. I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Yeah, I think I am too. I mean, the thing about this particular topic, and people that may listen to the last episode might remember me saying this, I, this is not something that I have spoken about often in any kind of public forum. It's actually, it's not even, a, th these experiences that I've had as a military contractor are not even things that I've spoken about much in private, except with other people who were also contractors. And there's a lot of reasons for that. We'll talk about some of those. There's a lot of stigma that goes along with military contracting. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you just, uh, it, so it's, it's something that I'm, only very recently, like in the last few months, have started to kind of open up and tell people more openly about my experiences. And I've been a bit surprised by how receptive people have been and interested in hearing about it. And, um, you know, maybe it's just like people have kind of shifted their mindset a little bit. I don't know. But I'm enjoying the and appreciating the opportunity to be able to talk about this stuff that I've been bottling up for 17 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I want to I want to just before we dive in, I just want to say as well as sort of a caveat to this is that we're all firm believers in people got to live and you we're certainly not participating in that whole you were a military contractor to the ocean with you like you know, this is not <laughs> right. This is not how <laughs> into we the do lake it. of fire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's just not yeah. And so and, and the other thing as well is the opportunity to demystify this stuff because it's yeah. just not something that people talk about in any kind of education way for sure. But to be able to pick your brain and to, you know, have that understanding of how things work in this world is, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty invaluable. So I've, uh, I really appreciate and value that you are willing to have the conversation and no stigma here. Right. And, and in episode two, you know, Troy, you mentioned that the process here is kind of uh, peeling an onion, you know, a big, stinking, yeah. ugly onion. Right. And, a big, Corey, rotting onion. Kind of, <laughs> right. Corey, you kind of made it a much more concrete in some of your statements around how integrated the corporation, mm. the modern state and the kind of war machine is, you know. So one reason that I kind of wanted to revisit this is to kind of tease out or delineate a little bit more clearly for listeners, just what the modern corporate imperial state is. Because I don't think a lot of people really understand <laughs> yeah. it in a, in a very practical way. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. I mean, because it's like when most people think about military contractors, kind of two things come to mind. They think about weapons manufacturers and people that make big expensive planes that don't fly. And they think about Blackwater private security contractors who murder private civilians with impunity and have no consequences, which is not exactly what happened. But that's kind of the two pictures that people have when you say contractor. You're either like part of this big corporate conglomerate that's producing like weaponry and aircrafts, or you're actively mowing down civilians with automatic weapons and right, facing no right. consequences. And that is, right. uh, it is not what contracting is. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's a lot in between those two poles. Oh, very much. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you, you made some comments uh, last episode that if we if we had a contractor less military, we'd have, you know, we'd basically go from a force of about one million to two million service members overnight. Because right now we have about a million person or so active duty military that is then supplemented by this vast international corporate contracting apparatus. So I'll just kind of summarize in case you missed out on episode two. It's clearly, I think, worth going back and listening to in its full length. But Corey, you, you said, I think you had about 17 years of contracting service under your belt and 10 plus years or so were in war zones, five of those years being in Iraq and three being in Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, let, let me clarify that a little bit. So I have been working abroad for 17 years. The majority of those 17 years, I was working as a military contractor. I've not been a military contractor since the last contracting job 
job I had was 2014, which is when I left Afghanistan. Although I am still working abroad, I don't, I just don't work in a defense contractor capacity anymore. However, my husband is still a defense contractor and has been doing it for almost as long as I have. He had like a hiatus in the middle there. So he's, he's also sitting at about like 10, 11, 12 years of contracting and is, is currently working as a contractor himself. And so, you know, I'll obviously be judicious about exactly what kind of details I can share about that. But I am very much still like I have friends that were part of the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan contractors who their responsibility was to shut down the bases and they were like some of the last people to leave before it all went to hell in August you know they were like literally on one of the last flights before it all went just completely nuts and the Taliban took over the rest of the country you know so you just you don't think about things like that but like unarmed civilians who are there performing logistics support tasks that are there shutting down military bases as the army is like loading the last pallets onto the plane like there were people that were doing that and some of them were my very close friends or a real quick question you know when as you start to talk about this stuff what is the general just out of curiosity the the general sort of agreement when you depart i mean are you do you have you signed like like a something is there like an nda yeah, kind of i, I mean yeah Oh, oh, like an NDA. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, everybody's got an NDA. I mean, there's things that we're not supposed to talk about. There's, it it depends also on like what your job was. At one point, I had a security clearance. They were handing them out like candy back then. And there was no part of my job that required me to have a security clearance, which is something that they recognized pretty quickly and decided to deactivate it. But I had to go through the process to get one because the job requirement, you know, the job description said that I had to have it. You know, so there's, yeah, there's definitely things that we're not supposed to talk about. and, and there's times that I might like be judicious with details, but like broad stroke stuff. I mean, a lot of this stuff is public record and, and gotcha. frankly, all yeah. of it, all of it should be public record. So nobody should presume that you are um, giving away state secrets or, you know, no, anything, but yeah. no, definitely not. No, there's a, it's been long enough too, that there's a lot of details that I've forgotten, although I could probe my memory if I had to and, and come up with some things, but no, there's, there's nothing that I'm, I'm giving away that is like, that should be shocking. Well, no, I won't say that. <laughs> There's nothing I'm I'm saying that should be considered like confidential or proprietary information. Gotcha. Yeah. And and I think that's important just to to share so that people aren't listening, thinking, you know, you're somehow uh, working against America. Not a whistleblower. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, yeah, A whistleblower or some kind of communist. But uh... Well, maybe, but not like you think. No, I'm just kidding. No. I I mean, what's interesting is that my my time as a contractor very directly um, drove me to the left to the point where I do consider myself a socialist now and I was not when I went overseas. Good job, Uncle Sam. Yay. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think that process and a kind of like, you know, going through these systems, uh, be they military mm-hmm. or civilian contractors, using the term civilian loosely because as you've explained, you know, contractors spend a lot of their time in war zones. So it, it, there's a really blurry line as to whether or not you should consider yourself some form of civilian because it's you're in a war zone you know so i guess this is kind of the crux of the conversation that i wanted to get into which is just i wanted to talk about or get your your views on or understanding of uh, just the origination of a contractor's organization from maybe the legislative point of the process on through the point of the contract origination so my first kind of pointed question would be, are you familiar with the legislative authority under which the prime contractors' contracts are written? I don't know that there is a specific piece of legislation. There probably is, um, but I don't know what it is if it does exist about this particular bill authorizes the military to hire private contractors. But just, just speaking more broadly, there's an agency called the Defense Contract Management Agency, and their job is to oversee the creation and implementation and adherence to private contracts with the Defense Department. And they audit the performance of the contract and they you know, they give, you know, report cards to the contractors and their kind of auditing results determine whether or not that entity can continue to be a contractor if they have good performance. If they don't, then, that, you know, that counts against them when they're bidding for new contracts. So, you know, there's this whole like enterprise infrastructure that's been built in. But speaking very, very broadly, contracting is the byproduct of having an all-volunteer military. When we did away with the draft, we needed a smaller force. We, we couldn't have as many 
people in the military because we didn't have the ability to conscript them. And yet America loves doing some war. And uh, I don't know if y'all noticed, but we've done a lot of war <laughs> since, yeah. since Vietnam. We're real good at that. I actually just pulled up a, an article that says over 2.77 million service members have served on 5.4 million deployments since 9-11. This is a Forbes article. We'll, we'll link this in the show notes. So to put that in perspective. How do they define it? Yeah, I was going to ask how they define a deployment. Like that's. Well, deployment can be anything from like, you know, a 12 month tour in Iraq or a six week tour in northern Africa to execute a very specific mention. Uh, so it's their deployment, what they're yeah. what they lead the states to go engage in as individuals. Exactly. It's it's leaving the territory of the United States to execute a military objective as a deployment. To war. Essentially. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Right. So like so Bill, you were in the Navy, so like a deployment would include your time on the boat. Right. So so here's I'll give you an example just to kind of clarify. So deployment is used very loosely. So I did a about a seven and a half month deployment on the US Eisenhower back in 06, 07, right? Well then later in 07, I did a one or two week deployment on uh the George Washington. So I, both are deployments, but both are pretty much fundamentally different. And you know, there are other de- I guess you could call them forward operating forces or whatever. They're they're mm-hmm. always on some form of deployment. Even training can be viewed as, I guess that would be pre-deployment or something, you know, so you'd have like training and stuff. So yeah, it is a term that's used very kind of loosely and it's a very amorphous term. But, you know, to that point, you know, the fact that there were these like two week deployments, six week deployments, things like that, that happen all the time. I mean, that could not happen without the infrastructure support that contractors bring. And that's the point is that when we have an all volunteer army, then you're limited in the the number of people that you can have in service. And to have the ongoing infrastructure that's necessary to support those deployments. I mean, like a unit goes on a six week deployment in North Africa to carry out a very specific mission. There may be like targeting a particular like person on the like wanted terrorist list or whatever it is, whatever mission might be for like just a short period of time, two weeks, six weeks, you know, they're going to land at a facility of some kind. That facility is operated largely by contractor labor. They're going to be flying on planes that are largely maintained and kept in operational order, mostly by contractor labor. They're flying on, on aircraft and using equipment that has been built by contractors or has been maintained by contractors or both. The meals that they get served, even the the supplies that they get have been procured by contractors. The entire logistics infrastructure that supports even those short deployments is made possible only because of our dependence on contractor labor. Something else to highlight, you mentioned it earlier, like, oh, you know, we're not really breaking ground or, or I guess creating revelations or whatever for people. But for a lot of like average Americans who are just working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, often they hear these type of narratives and these type of stories. And it is, it is kind of earth shattering or very revealing to them because this is a, a loose based series of organizations that never stops and it's always shifting shape. And part of the way that it does that is kind of through this very, what seems appears to be a very flexible contracting process. So you mentioned prime contractors in episode two, and I'm assuming that a prime contractor is someone who, actually, let me not assume. Do, do, you, do you know a concrete okay, name yeah. or... Yeah, so the prime contractor is like that is who is directly contracted to the military entity. A lot of the contracts are with the army, but you can have, you know, any branch of the military, like whenever the army signs a contract with company X, that is the prime contractor. But then the scope of the work that company X may be asked to do is often so big that they subcontract out portions of that work to be done by other companies that use cheaper labor so that they can meet basically the price requirements of the military. The military only wants to pay a certain amount of money for these contracts and they they have big jobs that they want done for this certain amount of money. And, you know, the only way that the contractors can do that is to like lower the cost. The biggest cost is labor. So they subcontract stuff out to get, uh, and that's where the subcontractors come in. So the prime contractor is the one that has the direct contract to the military. And this is where the kind of the obfuscation starts to set in. And that is that the military and the 
Defense Contract Management Agency, their responsibility is to oversee the activities of the prime contractor. And it is the prime contractor's responsibility to oversee the activities of the subcontractor. And so when you start to build in these multiple layers of subcontractors, and then sometimes third tier subcontractors to the subcontractors, that happens too. Like there's multiple layers of accountability that get added, like so that the person representing the United States Army who signed the contract with company X isn't ultimately on the hook for the shenanigans carried out by the subcontractor. And that is something that everybody in that chain of command uses to their advantage, the military them included. Okay, and these prime. So, are, are we talking generally size, or are most prime contractors multi-billion-dollar companies? I mean, it it literally it it can be anything. Like when I was in Iraq, there were really, really, really huge multi-billion-dollar contracts that were done by massive multinational corporations, and then there were also like, say, here's a fifty million-dollar contract for a company that employs five people, and four of them work in Baghdad, and like. That's that kind of thing. It just depends on like what work is being requested, you know? Yeah, I'm looking. I I was just doing a little bit of search online and I'm very dismayed to find a a website called OperationMilitaryKids.org. And it's basically a website devoted to helping kids figure out what they want to do in the military. Operation Military Kids was founded to be a resource for teens and young adults who are interested in joining the military, but don't know where to begin. And in this, I found this, The Ultimate Guide to Becoming a Private Military Contractor. I'm not surprised. Listen, the indoctrination is strong, okay? Wow. They get into these military families. They play on to the whole, like, serve your country thing. There are requirements. There are things that you have to meet if you want to serve in the military. Let's say you come from a big military family and you're like, I'm going to join the army just like my dad. If you don't meet some of the physical parameters for that, or if you have some other kind of thing going against Chronic. you that prevents yeah, you from yeah. being able to do that, right, then you may not be able to do that, but they'll hire you as a contractor, Well, you know, what's interesting is, you know, talking about like security clearance and all that kind of stuff, you know, I'm reading some of the, some of the things here. They're like, never have you taken an illegal drug. You've never had a series of financial hardships. You've never, like, there are all these things, but that's not the same rules don't apply to people who are joining the military, right? Well, actually, the funny thing about that is that um, that doesn't even apply to contractors. So to get a security clearance, it doesn't mean that you've never done those things. What it means is that you're not hiding that you've done those things. So Uh it is absolutely possible for uh, it's harder, but it is 100 percent possible for people who have, you know, maybe been arrested for a small amount of marijuana possession or who have like uh, some kind of arrest record or have had like bad debt. They could still go on to get a job that requires them to get a security clearance. The, The question is are you like straight and clean like now are you able to pass a drug test right now is are your finances in order right now you know gotcha. is what what they're concerned about when it comes to clearance uh and you know bill i don't know if you have any experience with this too but like what they're concerned about is whether or not someone has the ability to hold something over your head leverage, as leverage. It, yeah so, for example, I mean, this is something that we'll get into this on another episode when we talk about um, like criminal defense stuff. But um, like my husband, who's a military contractor, he has from almost 30 years ago, he has a felony conviction. And it was a, a situation where he was a very, very young man. He was actually active duty at the time in the Marines. And he was having a mental health crisis and got into a bad interaction with police. And it led to like just an escalating situation, cops doing what cops do. And, uh, and you know, led to a, a situation where he ended up with a felony. And and that continues to follow him to this day. It hasn't prevented him from serving as a contractor and it hasn't prevented him from getting like there's different tiers of clearance that you need, you know, to get a a military badge, to, you know, a military ID, to get different kinds of jobs require different levels of clearance. It hasn't prevented him from being able to do that. It hasn't stopped him from getting other kinds of jobs, but, you know, he's he's been able to serve as a contractor. One more tangential question. When it comes to that security clearance, how is that enforced in the space of like when you're working in whatever theater you're working in? Are they like you wave a badge on a door? Is there somebody standing there checking your credential? I mean, how does that? Well, it really, I mean, it's such a broad spectrum. It is such a broad spectrum of like what a security clearance even entails. And like the most low level clearance is like if you are ever in possession of documents that are classified on 
on any level and you allow even the possibility of someone. So for I'll give you an example. The contractors that I worked for, we ran the uh, the laundry facilities and it was very, very common for, you know, when soldiers turn in their clothes to get washed, somebody would leave a USB drive in their pocket of their BDU oh. and it would have documents on it. And that soldier would get in a lot of trouble, which is one of the reasons why, like, you know, we all joke about it now, 2016, oh, but her emails. But legitimately, as a person who worked as a contractor and who had a security clearance and knows what they did to people who, like, even the most tacit, accidental, just innocuous violation of, of making some kind of secret documents potentially available to someone, and they would just read those people the riot act. I mean, depending on how bad it was, they, they might get stripped of a rank, they might get a lot of things could go on to them. And, you know, we were all just supposed to, like, look the other way and like, oh, you know, no big deal. Hillary was sending, like, you know, secret yeah. clearance documents to her private email. Like, it, there's a there's a whole conversation we could have about how we handle data security and whether or not yeah. we are overclassifying things. The answer is yes, we are. We are overclassifying things a lot. But that just, it just the disparity in how her violations were treated versus how the average person would have been right. treated in the same situation. Like, that person would have been in prison if someone else had done the same thing, period. Yeah, yeah. And and I find that the very least a bit of surprising, but yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah. And we're in this kind of weird place, I guess, as a country or, you know, just in a, as a civilization or whatever. You know, in Snowden's book, Permanent Record, he talks about at one point being in a bunker in Hawaii, I think. And he had mm -hmm. access to the Defense Intelligence Agency, the CIA, Pentagon, several other like massive NSA, I think. Well, he, I think he's he was a contractor. <laughs> Right. Wow. Well, the thing is, is like, we know all this infrastructure is there. We know that all these organizations have conspired to develop an international surveillance apparatus. You know, yep. so it's like, at what point we talk about overclassification, at what point are we simply making a categorical error yeah. with yeah. the whole notion or our whole current notion of secret? What is and isn't secret? Oh, yeah. I mean, we could have an entire podcast discussion, and we probably should at some point in the future, about like what constitutes secret information. Like There are cases, a lot of them actually, of documents that got classified by accident. Yeah, <laughs> because it's just easy, I guess, because it's yeah. just stamp it. All right, it's classified. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You come in making the right noise, and Same. it's got the right color stamp and the right color form or whatever. Right. I mean, I definitely see right. that happening. We're sending five cars over to Country X. All right, classified. All right, what? why? You know, but even like something more innocuous in it, like like inter office memos that have no like strategic value or share no information, but still get classified because it just happened to be bundled together with some other papers. That uh, yeah, right. Like that happens oh, more yeah. than you think. Yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah, I definitely, definitely believe it. You know, I was going to ask a, a question about bad actors and do people get into the, to this business to sort of exploit overwrought bureaucratic systems, which is actually pretty easy to do if you had a mind for it, or, uh, or are we going to touch on that a little later in the show? I can speak to that broadly, that it's actually, I mean, depending on how you're defining exploit bureaucratic systems, I mean, I think it's not as easy to exploit them as people assume that it is. People assume that we're just dumping bags of cash at like KBR's headquarters and and right. like, and Halliburton's headquarters and like nobody knows where it goes. Actually, the, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, there, there, there were times, there are times still where the United States government is literally handing bags of actual cash to people. People. Those people are people like the Mujahideen or, oh, you know, that we were funding yeah, yeah. for all of the 80s and most of the 90s. You know, that, that that thing, that kind of thing does happen. But when it comes to contractors, it is rigidly defined, rigidly enforced. And it actually, it's kind of hard to exploit the system for just pure profit. What's like, for? You, like you're just well, no, no, like, like corruption, like corrupt. And, and okay. I'm not saying that corruption doesn't happen. But yeah. like, you know, corruption does happen. And I've, I've seen some some doozies. But like the, the profit that's being extracted is profit that was defined by the parameters of the contract that the right. military signed into the, the terms. 
Well, you know, and here just to clarify, when I'm um, wondering, you know, when I say that places or organizations that are just like overwhelmed with bureaucratic burden, there is a kind of person that can hide in those places and use mm-hmm. the the confusion of it or the, oh, no, I'm sorry, you have to, you know, I know you just came here with this form, but I need the other form. So, you know, and right. at, like, you know, there there is a certain amount of, you know, maliciousness that goes into that. Like, no, I'm sorry. I know that you're starving right in front of me. And, uh, you know, or you're bleeding to death, but I can't, I'm, I don't have the authority to do this unless I, you know, just this sort of an abdication of doing right. right. And I also think too, that there's this certain kind of grifter that uh, may not be making all the money, but is somebody who, who really kind of looks for opportunities to be, you know, I don't know what, not, not so much disruptive, but you know, I, what's the opposite of disruptive, like, you know, extra eruptive, you know, people who are just really leaning into the bureaucracy of it all. And almost like what comes to mind is that DMV character kind of a miserable person who's sort of there to spread, you know, misery. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's a, I think that's more mythology than anything. Like most people who are in public service positions are really just people that are doing their best in a system that is, but you're right. There are people that do get off on the power trip a little bit of yeah, being yeah, able yeah. to, you know, hold something, hold some part of the process over people's heads. And definitely that happens both within the contractor structure and the military structure. Like there was a, this is a funny story. It wasn't funny at the time, but when I was first in Iraq in 2004, uh, living in a tent, there was a Marine commander on the base that we were on who was kind of overseeing the base operations. And uh, he had a personal beef with our site manager for the company that I worked for. And so he used to send his Marines over to basically rouse all of us out of our tents at two o'clock in the morning for a surprise inspection and he did it a bunch of times and they would confiscate people's personal property and they would just say like oh, this is contraband it wasn't contraband it was just a thing that they just decided so they were like Rude. taking people's shit and like it was a hundred percent an abuse of his power it was technically within the rules but it was definitely an abuse of power and it went up the chain and that guy actually got stripped of his rank okay good yeah that's good to hear yeah so abuse of power it happens in all structures there's a deep paradox at the core of these conversations in the sense that you have repeatedly talked about accountability and auditing and things of that nature built into this system from the prime contractor down, at least, mm-hmm. that, you, that you've experienced and know of. Right. However, the Pentagon can't pass an audit, you know, yeah. so, so it's like, what is the breakdown there? You know, is it that the audits that they're being asked to perform at the Pentagon are simply too vast in their demand of accountability? Or is it just that the Pentagon is just simply full of corrupt imperialists at this point? Or just hubris, I, right? How dare just, you? Yeah, just hubris. Yeah. Like, we don't you can't handle to. the truth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, no, no. Actually, we want the truth. Like, actually, we, we, can't, we can't handle it. Yeah. We, we can handle it, turns out. <laughs> well, you know, the complexity of the audit audit structure definitely plays a role here. And that's where some of the fraud, waste and abuse occurs. That's where the, that is where the fraud, waste and abuse occurs. It's it's some of it is malicious. Some of it is like people are like, oh, yeah, I can get away with this. And they're never going to catch it because they don't have time to look this deep. And some of it is just people like making a snap decision that is not the best decision in the moment, but it's the, mo- it's the decision that they made. And then there's no like follow up and accountability on that because they're the system is just overwhelmed. Like I said, we did get I, I said this in our last episode, like we were audited constantly. We were we had either representatives from the DCMA or the Defense Contract Audit Agency, which is another a separate agency that is solely dedicated to the purpose of auditing contractor performance. And then there was also like another auditing agency, the Army Auditing Agency, the AAA. They were a separate entity that came in. And then we also had internal structures to audit our own performance, to audit because you know we had every task that we performed every time. I put a box on a shelf in a warehouse. We had to be in compliance with the terms of the contract that governed the work that we were doing. We had to be in compliance with federal like safety and work standard practices like OSHA requirements. We had to be in compliance with a litany of military regulations. If we're talking about warehousing and supply chain management, we had to be in compliance with the thousand plus pages long federal acquisition regulation, just a massive, massive tome. Uh, We also had to be in compliance with just a whole range of standard operating procedures that were produced internally 
by the company. We had to be in compliance with standard operating procedures that were produced by the military agency that was contracting us, in this case, the Army. So they had the military, the Army had their own SAP, uh, SOPs, the company had their own SOPs. You know, we had to be in compliance with like seven, eight, nine, ten different layers of different things that we had to abide by that we were being audited against all the time. Now, like, how effective were those audits? I mean, it, there is such a thing as auditing too much. And, and this is a big part of what happened is that, that it was just you're constantly in the frame of mind of getting ready for the next uh, inspector to walk in the door and it, it actually impedes your ability to get the work done and slows yeah. down and, and makes things less efficient. <laughs> How do you get through that? I mean, I, how, I mean, you are somebody whom I've known for quite some time. You are, you are a go-getter. You want to do the thing and get it done. How did you not murder yeah. somebody? <laughs> Ironically enough, um, my, <laughs> my, my jobs that I had were, were part of that internal auditing infrastructure. I worked for a period of time for our health and safety team, and we, we um, inspected things in, to keep in compliance with health and safety standards. And then there was another period of time that I was working with the training operation where we were running around training people on standard procedures and developing courses to uh, like help people become familiarized with the requirements. And then in my time in Afghanistan, I worked with uh, what we called the training and assessment team where we trained people on procedures and we also did internal assessments to see how they were doing. So I was I was part of that auditing infrastructure and I was part of the people that I had to like, you know, engage with the folks that were trying to get their jobs done and not make them want to kill me. <laughs> so, wow. uh, right. so it wasn't that you killed anyone, you were just trying not to be killed. <laughs> I was basically <laughs> avoiding murder myself. <laughs> well, so there's this uh, author, I think she's a psychologist, Nancy Sherman, she wrote this book, The Untold War inside the hearts, minds, and souls of our soldiers. I read this book probably a decade ago, and as I was reading it, that's one of the things, other than my actual service, it's kind of one of the books that kind of replanted the idea in my mind about, well, the importance of military contracting and a lot of these issues of corruption and what happens, because as a result of corruption, because uh, one of the kind of sub-stories in that book was about Ted West using, and this was happening in 04, 05. He was like a West Point colonel who volunteered to, I think, serve in Iraq. He was a very kind of like subscribed very deeply to these type of ancient values, you know, of honor and sacrifice and duty to a, a broader cause. And, and he was, I'm not sure, I think he might have been a philosopher. So he was like deeply versed and well versed in these things and believed them very deeply. And then I think he became very dejected with a level of what he perceived to be corruption. And he was found with a bullet in his head. And it was, there's always been speculation ever since that he might have very well been killed due to yeah. his expressing that he was wanting to blow the whistle on some corruption he was experiencing. Without a doubt, corruption happens. You know, I, I don't say this to say that like, oh, the, the infrastructure is so rigid that it's not possible for corruption to occur. It's more accurate to say, I'll, I'll make two points. Yes, corruption happens because corruption is inherent in capitalism and in human behavior. And um, you will find the same forms of corruption existing in literally every capitalist enterprise. The other point being that it's not that corruption doesn't happen. It's that the mechanisms that do exist are there to catch it when it does and they do catch it it is possible to catch it and you know mad as it might make people when you say like oh we found this this corruption in this place like yeah it's because you found it it's it's because the mechanisms were there to to well, uncover right. that corruption. I'll, I'll tell a really, really wild story. And I don't remember this person's name because it has been 17 years, actually, 16, 17 years since at this point. But uh, on my first base that I worked in in Iraq, our company had a, a contracts department and their responsibility was to oversee both our adherence to our performance of the contract that was governing us, but also to award subcontracts to pick companies to to perform some of those breakout tasks that we talked about and to oversee those performances and to ensure that they were in compliance with all the things that they were in compliance. So this is the these are the people that were in charge of making sure that the sub subcontractors were doing what they were supposed to do. And there was a contracts manager um, who was dirty as hell. And he was taking kickbacks, cash kickbacks from the subcontractor that was hired to do almost all of the subcontract labor on the contract that we were doing on the base that we had. And actually we covered 
operations for 12 military installations all across western Iraq. These were subcontractors that were working everywhere from uh, Ramadi all the way out to basically the Syrian border bases all along that part of Iraq. And the subcontractor in question was paying cash kickbacks to this contract manager to, to give them the contract. It was discovered. It was rigorously investigated. They actually sent, they sent U.S. Marshals to our base in Iraq to personally escort this man all the way back to the United States to face charges for this. Oof. Wow. And the weirdest thing that happened is back in those days, like the, we had to take like a few different flights. You had to like take a few little what we call puddle jumpers, you know, little little prop planes that you fly for short distances. So like they had to make a stopover in Kuwait. And while they were in Kuwait, somehow he slipped past their custody, <laughs> what? got through oh, like God. a side door. Got, like, obviously, they had like bribed like people, you know, all throughout the, the like, probably bribed like airport, you know, officials and workers and stuff like slipped through a side door in the Kuwait airport and was escorted onto a private plane of this contract, this subcontractor. And to my knowledge, he is still living in Jordan to this day, not being able to be extradited because there, there's no extradition agreement between this Jordan and... This is like a and, show, like a movie. It, it, it is a movie. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and you know, he's he's hiding out in his villa that he paid for with his cash kickbacks. And, you know, so that, that kind of thing does happen. The overwhelming majority of the time, the fraud is that someone either made a mistake or just wasn't getting proper oversight and then it was caught and then it was corrected. Very few cases are as extreme as that one. Right. And, and so you said that, because I just want to highlight this, he said that this guy, he held the contract and he was um, paid to basically give preference to this guy who was paying him, right? Yeah, essentially his job. So like, let's say for one example, um, you know, we needed a subcontractor that was going to run the laundry facility. It was going to wash all the clothes and a bunch of different companies are competing for that. They all want the job. And this company was paying him cash kickback to pick me. That's all it was. Right. And I, if I was this guy, I'm just saying if I was this guy, I would be like, hey, I thought you called this lobby. You know, so why, why is it okay for people to walk from K Street to Congress and pay people for, for preferential treatment on legislation? And, and, and uh, yeah. it's funny you say that because it's, yeah, the only you know? difference is that, yeah, they're doing, the, they're doing the wrong grifting dance in the wrong grifting place. Like, you know. I mean, literally, like if he had just said no to the cash bribe and then ran for Congress. Congress, he could have taken it legally. <laughs> right. And that speaks volumes about this system. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, so so you talked about, so there's these prime contractors that then subcontract. And I, I, I kind of did have a pointed question about as far as organizational structure. So let's say the prime contractor has a general goal or is, is tasked with, uh, you know, achieving a certain goal. Are organizational structures and parameters laid out within these contracts? Or uh, is it just a we'll pay X HR firm to develop that organizational structure or something like that? No, it's very rigidly defined. The contracts are incredibly specific and they stipulate like how many, like there's um there's actually like a spreadsheet that gets produced that says, if we're going to do this job, these are the job titles that we need to have to perform that job. And this is how much each one of those job titles needs to be paid and how many of those job titles that we need. And like that whole thing has to be like baked into the structure of the contract. So like, it's not like I can take a job as a contractor and go, you know what? I'm actually not making enough money to be working 16 hours a day, you know, seven days a week. I, I think that I should lobby for higher pay. Well, you know, too bad for me because the pay rate is literally baked into the contract. It's non-negotiable. So everything, all of those procedures, all of that is submitted and agreed to upfront as part of the structure of the contract. And for the subcontractors, essentially the rule is that you have to have a structure that's equivalent to what we have as the prime contractor, or it has to be even better than what we have. And as long as they're meeting that same structure, those same procedures, the same safety requirements, like let's say, you know, if I'm digging a ditch and my standard operating procedure says that a person has to have like eye protection and gloves, then your safety procedure for the same task, digging a ditch, also has to say at least you have to have gloves and eye protection, but you can also say, and they have to wear a hard hat. So it's above and beyond. So it's just like a very low level example. But like all of those procedures, all of that stuff gets structured and submitted and baked into part of how the contract is even like bid and approved. 
That's wow. Amazing. Yeah. And to me, the, the, it just, it really does. I mean, I, I, I know I just said this a few minutes ago, but I have a habit of repeating myself, but it's <laughs> like, <laughs> there's a, a deep paradox in the sense that there is so much structure, but it's clearly just like, there's, there's some deep breaks that are just either openly corrupt or we just like with the lobbying example, we define <laughs> certain things as corrupt in certain instances and certain things as uncorrupt in other instances, even though the corrupting effect exists in both instances but when it comes to congress i guess people are just i guess the implication is you almost have to delegitimize the whole institution if you want to acknowledge that it's like the the corruption is that a part of it which is why you'll never get an audit yeah well, and then again, you could just say that it's politics, right? So this this yeah. subcontractor who was trying to get his you know pay a bribe or whatever or lobby, <laughs> he, he was he was he was engaged in a type of raw politics that I think makes people very uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is not to say that what he did was okay. It definitely wasn't, especially because that particular contractor that he hired was uh, guilty of just rampant human rights abuses. They would not pay their employees for six months at a time or longer. They would feed them rancid food. They would kept they kept them in horrible what? living conditions. Oh yeah, it was it was awful. Well, you said at one point, and I think the episode two, that there were a lot of uh, third country nationals who were brought in to do work. Now, I'm assuming, is that also yep. part of the contract, like quotas on certain third party nationals that you could use or things like that for, for labor or expertise? So to clarify, like third country national in the context of U.S. military contracting literally means anybody who is not a U.S. national. So if you're not a U.S. citizen or a U.S. green card holder, then you're a third country national, even if you're directly employed by the prime contractor. Um, really? So like you could be my coworker, but if you're from Germany or you're from Sri Lanka, you know, we might work for the same company, but you're a third country national. Um, but the subcontractors almost exclusively, not exclusively, there were some Americans that worked for these subcontractors, but the subcontractors used almost exclusively labor from developing countries where people would I mean there there was this whole scandal in the the mid aughts in Iraq in particular about subcontractors who were engaging in trafficking in persons and it, it led to this big like public education initiative among both the military and contractors about how to spot human trafficking. They would do things like, okay, let's use this this corrupt company that I was referring to a minute ago that that paid the kickbacks to the contract manager. They would go to a country like India and they would say, okay, we um, we have jobs for uh, 50 people to run a laundry facility in Western Ar Oh, they, they wouldn't even tell them they were going to Iraq. They would they would say, we got 50 jobs for uh, for you in, let's say, in Dubai. And then they would get those people to Dubai, and then they would force them onto a plane where they landed in Iraq. And then they would take their passports. Wow. And then they would not pay them for six months because they had to, quote, pay back their recruitment fee. Oh, before they could start hard. earning money and they would be kept in these squalid living conditions. And, and like all of that was a violation of the contract. Every bit of it was. But if the guy that's overseeing that is getting kickbacks from the contractor, you know, the, from the subcontractor, then that's that's how that kind of shit goes down. And like one of the I, I mentioned that I worked in the health and safety team, like one of the responsibilities that we had was to inspect these subcontractor living facilities. And we would see like, yeah, OK, you're you're supposed to have a maximum of like four people living in this container. Uh, this living container and you have like 10 people living in here and they're sleeping in shifts like that is not okay and these are all electrical risks and this is a health and safety risk and this is like this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and we would go in there and we would write them up and we would say like you got to change this and we would go to the contracts department whose job it was to enforce those things and it wouldn't go anywhere and then we learned later the reason it was, wasn't going anywhere is because the guy was literally taking bribes but there was a mechanism for us to hold those contractors accountable you know and so there was that's that's what happened is that like multiple reports like that were made we had to relentlessly advocate on behalf of these workers who were being blatantly exploited and trafficked that was human trafficking to be held against your will in a foreign country and forced to work for free is human trafficking literally by definition and because they were subcontractor it was very easy for the military to just go like whoop you know we don't see that I have nothing to do about that that's not us <laughs> right so when I was in Dubai like in 07 or so massive amounts of construction were 
underway. And it was like, you, you'd see these just oceans of kind of blue suited, yep. imported, like I, I'd say largely like Indian labor. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think this has been well documented in some documentaries. Dubai's had some documentaries made about it. So a lot of this stuff is known. Qatar. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's it's just a, a matter of like, okay, everyone can see a lot of this stuff now. And it's 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 almost, it's undeniable. Yeah. And it's, it's really not good for anybody. And it's yeah. like, I'm, my personal conclusion is a fossil fuel oligarchy has got to be crushed. But, you know, that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Gulf <laughs> states in general had, and to a degree, do still have a major problem with trafficking in persons. However, that those stories that, that absolutely happened, all these beautiful structures that you see that were, were built in places like Dubai and Qatar, they were built largely by exploited trafficked labor by people who were either not paid or underpaid, people who were driven to suicide, I just people who were deeply, deeply exploited. And it led to actually a lot of reforms in the labor laws in all the Gulf countries. And now, actually, there are some very robust mechanisms in place for exploited laborers to get justice that are actually, I would say, quite effectively administered, much more so than anything we see in the U.S. of exploited labor. Wow. Yeah. Uh, one quick question about when it comes to oversight, when it comes to knowing that, you know, that there's provisions in a contract preventing trafficking of people and not feeding people and the whole thing. Is that just not as rigorously checked and triple checked and double quadruple checked and every night check everybody's pulse and every night, you know, like, you know, dead or alive, like... It is. It is rigorously checked. It's what happens to the checks. And I think this speaks to I the point you. you were making earlier about yeah. like the, the layers of bureaucracy, Troy, is like, yes, all of these layers of auditing are going on, these inspections are going on, but what happens to that information? I can go and write up a report. I could go inspect the same living facility for the same subcontractor every single day and write up every single deficiency. But if no one in the management structure is willing or has the power to enforce compliance, then it doesn't go anywhere. And that's where these multiple layers of deniability come into play. Because what the military ultimately wants from their contractor force is they want the most amount of work for the least amount of money. And they don't (laughs) really care if corners get cut as long as they Mm. get what they want. What they care about is if they can get held accountable for the corners that that get cut. So if the prime contractor is cutting corners, then the military agencies that are responsible for oversight of that prime contractor can get in a lot of trouble. And that's very rigorously enforced. But if the subcontractors are cutting corners, then that's up to the prime contractor to manage. And if the prime contractor is not doing their job, well, it's just like, how much do I actually know about what's going on if my job is to oversee the subcon, you know, the prime contractor's oversight of the subcontractor's oversight of the sub-subcontractors? Like, when you've got multiple layers of protection from accountability, there, then like I have plausible deniability. Like how I can I can easily say, well, I, I it's not in my scope of responsibility to be you know to ensure that this sub subcontractor was actually doing their job. Right. That's the that's those people's job. That's right. And then yeah, that's yeah. that's where the lobbying really comes into effect because you know you can say that like oh you know company X like lets their subcontractors run rampant and like traffic persons and abuse people and not pay them and cut corners and create dangerous situations and they should not be allowed to be a prime contractor anymore because they allow all these these shenanigans to go on. But if they're still getting the job done in the price tag that they want and they're lobbying the right members of Congress. Easier to overlook. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I think that um, I think we covered a little bit of uh, additional ground in, in addition to episode two. I didn't want to kind of be redundant, but I did kind of want to close out last few minutes just kind of talking about one, just kind of highlight like you have in the past that the U.S. is a kind of veteran specific or a veteran centered society. Right. So contractors get paid to do a job. They come back and it's almost as if it never happened. There is no support network. There is no GI Bill. There is no VA for them to right, return to. Right. And, and, and quite honestly, like I've, I'll tell you from a veteran's perspective, there's been a certain amount of, you could say, guilt or it, there's an uneasiness that I have with the dynamics that exist in this society. Because technically, I have lived over, you know, post-Navy life that one, it's 
it's a paradox in the sense that it's much more socialistic than most Americans can co quite comprehend. And it's also doable for everybody. That's the thing about me that really gets under my skin. There's no reason that someone should have to enter the military service for the GI Bill. College should simply- yeah, You're talking about the benefits that you get, true. right? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's no reason that someone should get health care because of military service that is de then deprived from the rest of the population. To me, that is such a deep, deep failure of this society. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. And to just kind of add to that about the healthcare part of it is that sometimes a question comes up when we talk about Medicare for all. People say, well, like, well, does that mean that you're going to get rid of the VA? And like, no, I don't think it does because the veteran community specifically has experiences and has exposures and health risks that are unique to that community. Right. But yep, yep. those risks and that exposure also applies to contractors who serve alongside veterans. Yeah. And yeah. VA benefits should be extended, I think, to uh, I, we should have Medicare for all. Everybody should have health care. But we should also have like the, the unique needs that apply to veterans. That's right. The specialized care you'd get at, a, at the VA. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So, and, and you mentioned last in episode two, the paper, I think it was 2011, 2012, Dead Contractors, the Unexamined Effect of Surrogates on the Public's Casualty Sensitivity. You know, and, and I think kind of digging into those type of narratives and boosting those things is probably paramount in it to, to really bringing about any kind of change. You know, like I said earlier, Nancy Sherman's The Untold War, I think, was published around that time. There's another one, uh, Jonathan Shea. He has a a really profound reinterpretation or interpretation of the Odyssey where it's, you know, Odysseus in America, combat trauma and the mm -hmm. trials of coming home. Because, you know, the two oldest professions in civilization tend to be soldiers and prostitutes, right? So, yeah. you know, it's like, I think this dynamic is, for me anyway, made it made me kind of susceptible to, to people like Cornel West, who have been pushing very hard and strong this, this issue of even though, hey, even though we're in modernity, post modernity who knows where we're at there still has to be a moral accounting for these things yeah yeah and when you see these the odyssey reinterpreted in such a way it kind of really brings that home you know for me anyway so some of those books and things can be related to by contractors but i was going to see if if you knew of any kind of uh, the books or other writings or artistic depictions that you think contractors could use to find some kind of peace or solace or you know in troubled times or something you know, I off the top of my head, I don't. I'd definitely be interested in checking out the books that you mentioned. But, you know, the weird thing about contracting, especially wartime contracting, is that it is, in many ways, it is almost inseparable from the experience of the troops. And in many other ways, it is wholly unique. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording today, Bill, and I think we got into it a little bit on the last episode, too, about how when you start to understand that civilian contractors for the military are doing jobs that would have been done by people in uniform back in the day, back in like the, say, the Vietnam prior era. Right. When you begin to understand that, that dynamic, that is that is key to understanding how we need to regard contractors in terms of our social responsibilities yes, to them. Right. And also key to understanding like how we decide how our military is used because of this dependence on the civilian contractor force. And so it is unique in the sense that like there's experiences that we have as contractors that are, are separate from the military, but we are in it with the military we are we are right there like I've, I've said in the past rockets kill contractors too i know because i wrote a lot of the reports you know anybody in the way of shrapnel can pay the price for that and so like we should treat the people that have been in that system as integrated as uh, as we treat our our own uniformed personnel but we should also be actively working to dismantle that i am a hundred percent like for a long time i have been a hundred percent in favor of dismantling at the very least wartime contracting i think military contracting altogether needs to go away i don't know yeah. like how it would be possible to do that at this point i think we could if we really right. set our minds to it but it would require such a dramatic shift in how we even conceive of and use our military yeah. 
Well, and, and also in how we verify and validate the experiences that contractors have had. Right. And, you know, a lot of people are, you know, they react to military contractors as though it is the military contractor's fault for being there. You know what I mean? Like it's this odious collection of villains on the grift right. when we're talking working class people doing working class work. In some cases, I'm presuming that there's, you know, upper management as there, you know, is in any kind of, you know, we we're talking about the oversight and all that. But at the end of the day, I'll can we as a country feel okay? How can anybody as an individual say, well, yeah, no, we did that for soldiers, but not for these people. I mean, these human beings, you know, Americans, like, and even beyond Americans, by the way, because I think that, yes. you know, just hearing from you, like, yeah. peeling that back, peeling more of this big stinky onion back, you're like, this is murder in some cases. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. There's, there are lead. So like we going back to like what we talked about at the top of the, the show, 2.77 million service members have deployed since 9-11. Every one of those has been supported by a contractor. So at the bare minimum, at the bare minimum, it's a one-to-one ratio. So double that number. So we're talking about almost 6 million people that, you know, have been deployed in service. But actually, you know, depending on like, you know, where we were in terms of troop levels in different countries, you know, there are plenty of times where contractors outnumbered the troops. And so I think the real number is definitely north of 7 million just since 9-11 of individual people who have been deployed in service of America making war around the country country since, you know, the last 20 years. Um, and that's just in the last 20 years, which is really when it kind of hyped up. Um, but it did start right. before then because we had we had contractors, you know, under the Clinton administration in Bosnia, you know, a lot of other places, you know, so the contracting has been been a thing for quite some time. I mean, contracting technically goes back to World War II, but it didn't really become what it is today until like the mid 90s. Ultimately, when when Clinton like went on his effort to start scaling back the military, like it was this big thing, like we're going to save all this money, we're going to like downsize our military because we don't have a cold war to fight anymore. We don't have to go make war all the time and yay and there were a lot of troops that were pissed off about that but they all they did was replace those jobs with contractors they didn't actually right. scale back our operations which is why the pentagon budget goes up every year right. every single year and kind of a point that you were making earlier bill is like contractors actually wartime contractors particularly actually spend more time in war zones most of us than the troops do right. i mean i spent five years in iraq I spent three years in Afghanistan. Most people who deployed to either of those countries did one tour. Like they, at the height of the surge, they were doing like 15 month tours. A lot of them, you know, did only one tour. There was a, you know, a smaller number that did two or three tours. Very few did more than three tours, but there were contractors that worked there for 10 years straight or longer. And this system does breed, I think, a type of internal incongruity in the souls or hearts or minds, whatever. Of, um, I was just thinking that's yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, soldiers feel more like contractors than warriors chasing valor, and contractors get kind of much closer to war and uh, are often in war to much more of a degree than they thought when they originally signed up. So it's like yeah. you know, so we we really have a combined force of contracting warriors, and really, mm-hmm. I think we maybe this is above kind of my head, but I think we've made a categorical error as far as we are America's, you know, this thing like America's always fighting its last war. So we're, right. I think that the the globe definitely, but I think that large parts of the country too are ready to move past the World War II order. Like the whole system that we're outlining still is immersed in this kind of, you know, 40 to 45 mentality that then gets re-upped with Vietnam and altered a little bit and then gets re-upped and altered a little yeah. bit with Afghanistan and Iraq. So it's like in considering climate and inequality, we've, these are two very pressing emergencies, I would argue that one, we don't need this type of war fighting anymore, I don't think. Two, what this system has evolved into is something that is based on those two conversations. It's just screaming yeah. for more war. Right. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. I got. I got. A, I got a way to like tie all this up into like a nice, neat little bow that just kind of brings all of these different threads together. So we, earlier in the episode, you were talking, Troy, about like the disgruntled bureaucrat sitting in the DMV, like lording over their little kingdom and and like making people miserable. And my counter to that was that like most, yeah, those people exist, but most people are just regular folks just trying to do a good job in the system that they've been handed. Yeah. And here's the thing: this is going to be a little bit controversial, but I am, and I will be until the day I die. I will be incredibly proud of the work that we did under the circumstances that we did it. 
I was in Iraq when Bush announced the surge, okay? And I was I was in Iraq when that happened. And we had such a massive influx of troops coming in. We had our, you know, the contractor that I was working for at the time, our responsibility was to basically establish facilities on military installations and run operations to support the work that the military was doing. And we can, we, we will have a whole debate some other time. We've done a little bit of that here about like the degree to which like that should not have been happening. We shouldn't have been in Iraq. We shouldn't have like, whatever. We were there. Okay. There were troops that were coming in. They needed a place to sleep. They needed a dining facility to get their meals from. They needed to have their laundry washed. They needed to have their vehicles serviced. They needed to have like a warehouse to hold their supplies. They needed to have all this infrastructure that had to be done. We stood up entire military bases in 30 days or less. Right. Like, hey, we got this many troops coming in. They're going to be here on this date. And literally, like, we're building the facilities, wiring in the, the air conditioning units and rolling in the pallets of food to start feeding troops in 30 days or less, working around the clock. We built right. cities. We built entire cities, functioning cities of, of military bases in places where people were actively trying to kill us. We were getting rockets thrown at us while we were doing this. Right. And we built these incredibly complex systems under very demanding circumstances, working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just to support like a massive logistical undertaking. And I'm proud of that work. I'm proud of like what we were able to achieve. And what what that brings this home to is the fact that what we were able to do, just imagine if we deployed that same determination, that same urgency, that same ingenuity, that same work ethic, if we deployed that to solving climate change, if we deployed that to revitalizing cities that have been abandoned by capitalism in America. Tackling houselessness. Yeah. How, tackling house. We absolutely have the power to solve all of those problems. We have the ingenuity. We have the determination. We have the financial resources. We know that. We have the ability to solve all of these problems and we can do it very, very quickly. In a month. If the U.S. government decided <laughs> that they wanted to turn West Virginia into a like a center for revitalized economy and, and new economic opportunity and just like community growth. They could do it and they could do it in a matter of months if they chose to. If they chose to. We have that. Like I have seen it in action. I have been part of it. Yeah. And like just to give you an idea of the scale of the operations that I was a part of, when we were in Iraq, for example, there was a there, there came to be a point, you might remember, there was a big series of stories about electrocutions that were happening where like there were some facilities, like some like lighting ballasts uh, that were shorting out in shower trailers and and it was resulting in some electrocutions. And there was like, I think, one or two deaths that occurred from that. And there were some other injuries as well. And so it was this very, very serious thing that our company had to respond to. And we had to, like, the, the corrective action was that we had to replace every single one of those light ballasts in, like, the theater of operations. And to do that, we had to purchase every single one of, like, the, the type that they told us to buy instead. Like, they, we had type A installed. They told us to buy type B instead because it was safer. It was more properly configured. We had to buy every single one that existed in the world, all of them. Yeah. And we didn't have enough to replace all the ones that need to be replaced. What? Like, like that's the scale that we're talking about. Like, like we were serving millions of meals a day between soldiers and contractors three times, four times a day, four, four meals a day. You know, like the scale of operations was huge and we did it while people were shooting at us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so like we have this capability we absolutely could do it so like don't feel like yes these these problems that we're trying to solve climate change you know economic destruction all of it it is big it is overwhelming it feels hopeless and impossible but it's not we can fix all of these things because i've seen well, we it have, done we the resources the people and the, that's right we're just putting right. those resources to war right now and instead we just need to put them somewhere else Absolutely. You know, I got to say, um, our next episode, we will dismantle trickle down misery. And the, yeah, this is just so mind altering to the degree that you mm -hmm. 
these are the moments where I, I really evaluate all the things that we're told and all the things that were, you know, I, I grew up in a military family. My grandfather was just, a, he was all about the valor, the, you know, the sacrifice and the, and, and there, and there were sacrifices to be sure. And we should treat our soldiers with reverence and respect for what they endured. But when I think about the fact that they don't have to, or that there's a ton of human misery that can be wiped out in a matter of 30 days, just take your pick, you know, start at the farthest corner and keep moving until you go through the entirety of the states. And it's shocking to me. And it just, it reaffirms that having these conversations, unpacking this information, sitting down and having that gut check with the two of you is right where I need to be. So, so thanks for that, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. We can do anything we set our mind to. It's just a question of what we're setting our mind to. That's right. Bootstraps. No, I'm joking. (laughs) Wow, Bill, this is quite an episode you put together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not me. It's, you know, primarily Corey and her experience. (laughs) And, uh, you know, this just kind of just want to take a second to highlight, you know, experience matters. You know, everybody's lived experience. Everybody's lived experience matters to one degree or another. Like every single person's lived experience, even though you like it's kind of like, you know, you talk about your experience as a contractor and you talked about feeding, you know, serving millions of meals. Right. Everybody Mm -hmm. was part of that system and could talk and speak to their portion of of their operations within that system you know and hopefully honestly over time hopefully people do and hopefully other people piece together all these stories and hopefully they form a grand narrative that kind of highlights just what has happened the last 20 years because I I do fear too often Americans go straight from 2001 to now every 9-11 people want to be like 9-11 I'm like yeah 9-11-2021 9-11-2001 was 20 years ago and there's been a lot transpire since then. <laughs> That's so funny. It's like never forget, but they seem to have forgotten quite a few key points. <laughs> or even worse, just never knew them to forget them. That's the yeah. you know never know. Right. <laughs> never know. That that is never gonna be know. our podcast motto. Never know. Just never know. Never know. <laughs> Knowledge is dangerous, kids. That's the lesson today. <laughs> Just yeah, never, never know. That's so good. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt. Never know. Okay. Well, so this has been another illuminating conversation with Corey. And uh, you know, thank you again for sharing your experience. As for me, yeah. uh, this is Bill. You can find me at Bill underscore Ryan underscore BL pod backslash backflip somersault. And then <laughs> you gotta type all that in and then maybe you'll find me. I'm the only person on social media who's antisocial. I get on social media just to be antisocial. <laughs> I don't think you're the only one, Bill. <laughs> I don't. You are not the only one. You have a, quite a crowd. Yeah, there are millions, millions of. And I'm Troy. Um, you can find me at meta underscore Troy and on Twitter, um, Troy.ae on Instagram and wherever else. And also, um, don't forget, never know. <laughs> All right. Uh, this is Corey, and uh, I will uh, stop sharing my knowledge because we're never supposed to know. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CM Archibald. <laughs> you can also follow this show at Breaking Left Pod, and you can find us on Breaking Left Pod at just about all, all the social media platforms, but we're mostly on Twitter. And you can also check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash Breaking Left Pod. You can kick in a little bit of support for us there. Those contributions end up helping us pay for our fantastic producer, Ren, um, yep. who does all this all editing right. for us us and uh, and is amazing and if you have a, a burning issue that you just are dying to talk to somebody about and you would like to share your story with us you can reach out to us at breakingleftpod at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you we'd love to hear your thoughts about the show the discussion we just had and if you got a story you want to share yourself we'd love to hear about that as well so breakingleftpod at gmail.com that's right send pictures we'll help we'll diagnose whatever it is <laughs> itchy burny whatever you got <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Till next time. Goodbye.